Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. D.D. Gutenplan is a journalist with a passion for history. A former editor at Vanity Fair and senior editor at The Village Voice, he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his investigative reporting on New York City's fire code, and he was recently appointed as editor of The Nation, the venerable journal of progressive opinion that's the oldest continuously published weekly magazine in the United States. His books include The Holocaust on Trial, an account of David Irving's libel case against historian Deborah Litstadt, and American Radical, a prize-winning biography of the left-wing journalist I.F. Stone. In 2016, writing for The Nation, he covered the U.S. presidential election, and that experience generated his most recent book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. The book intersperses profiles of a rising generation of progressive American activists with reflections on their historical precedents, a subterranean stream of radically democratic feeling from the Whiskey Rebellion of the late 18th century to the radical currents powering Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. When I met up with Don at his house in North London, I began by asking him to explain the title of his book. It's called The Next Republic because I realized that there, there are certain times in American history when most people felt that the government reflected their interests and concerns and that the country belonged to them. And by republic, I think the best definition is still Lincoln's definition, which is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And I guess I was trying to go back and figure out how many times this happened, what were these periods, and why did they end? I think one of the things that's really fascinating about your book is that you can easily imagine you, know, you were... You were there, you were witness to the catastrophe. You could have ended up writing a, a grim post-mortem. But you've written a very optimistic book, or at least a book that's full of hope. And what you suggest is that this nascent republic has been there all along, and it's deeply embedded in American history as well. Well, that's right. That's I suppose that's the thing that um, I've always been interested in as a, as a historian. It's the thing that I guess I came upon, upon when I was writing the biography of I.F. Stone, American Radical, and I, I came upon the phenomenon of the popular front. And I noticed that just in my own life as a sometime activist, that you would go to a picket line or a rally for abortion rights or gay rights or uh, against racism. And there would always be these two or three or four old people there. And, you know, a lot of times, particularly in New York, it would be the same three or four old people. And I, because I was writing about I.F. Stone, I became a kind of connoisseur of old reds, basically. And I began to see that there was this kind of long durée in American life and American history and this kind of wave that goes underground, but it never disappears. So that you have people who were fighting fascism and trying to organize boycotts against uh, German goods in New York in the 30s, and then these same people are 
organizing boycotts of you know racist landlords in the 50s and 60s and and in the 70s they're organizing against nuclear war and in the 80s they and some of their kids are fighting for gay rights or for women's rights or for the right to abortion and so there is this kind of deep or long wave i call it that seems to be operating and that is mostly left out of the history books. It's certainly left out of the books that they use to teach history in schools. You know, it's one thing to talk about utopia and utopianism, but I think that, in a way, is a way of dismissing the the real intensity of political emotions. And that really people have political desires, just like sexual desires and desires for for food or for, you know, other kinds of satisfaction, and that they're intense. And that they don't go away. And, you know, if they get frustrated, they get frustrated, but they don't, that doesn't mean you, you give up on them. When you throw off the British Empire, and when you get rid of a king, and you're in the 18th century, and you're the first people to ever do this, nobody knows where it's going to stop. You know, it wasn't preordained that it was going to stop where it was going to stop. It wasn't preordained that Alexander Hamilton, who's become a culture hero thanks to Lin-Manuel Miranda, that he was going to win those arguments about that America needed to become an oligarchy so that the wealthy would be invested in the persistence of the government. And if you look at, the, for example, the Pennsylvania State Constitution of 1776, one of the most radical constitutions up until that time anywhere, it was heavily influenced by the English Commonwealth and the, the writing and the debates that happened here in the 17th century and, and the, the Putney debates and the levelers and the diggers and all of that thought, which was suppressed in England. It's the history that makes the book optimistic or that gave me an optimistic point of view, not necessarily what I was seeing every day. It's the history that allowed me to realize that what I was seeing every day was something that was worth attending to and that could be building in a direction that was worth being hopeful about. And I think it's interesting what you're saying about that stream. You were talking about it as a kind of latent desire that ebbs and flows. And, and goes underground up. and wells yeah. up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And one of the points in which it had um, welled up early in the 20th century that then feeds into the New Deal in the 1930s and on into the 40s is with populism, with the populist party. Right. And and I wondered if you wanted to sort of seg into that, because one of the things that's really striking about your book is you're talking about the next republic and you look back at these lost republics or forgotten republics and with a kind of, not a kind of, a sympathetic eye towards the populist impulse. I mean, in a way, your book is structured theme and the method Align because you're not writing a book about the leaders of the progressive left in America. You're writing a book about the grassroots, That's right. ordinary folk, I mean, who are involved in politics, some of them, and some of them are citizen organizers or community activists or whatever. Well, maybe you could say a bit about what populism means to you and why in your book it doesn't come across as a term of it's abuse. It's a terrible, threatening thing. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, so... Okay, a couple of things. I mean, one is each time the stream comes above ground, you know, it, it comes from deep roots. And to me, the, the deep roots of the Roosevelt Republic lie in the populist revolt. Uh, and I use the term, you know, advisedly and, and with a nod to Lawrence Goodwin, who explains brilliantly, and I think in a way that no one else has, but, who, but the, that was appreciated 
by, of all people, Steve Bannon. You know, when when Goodwin says that the populist revolt was was primarily a cultural achievement, not so much a political, or not just a political achievement, but a cultural achievement, because it gave ordinary people the the tools they needed to feel entitled to protest and to demand of their betters a more just economic arrangement. Well, that's a left-wing version of what Breitbart, who founded Breitbart News, when he said politics is downstream of culture, which is the central insight of the sort of Bannonite right. But I think that's true. And so I think, you know, in populism, particularly in the in the populist revolt of the 1880s and 1890s, you have an agrarian revolt. So you have farmers complaining about the terms imposed on them by finance capital and and basically being pauperized by banks, you know, which is pretty familiar from our current landscape. But you also have the first alliances across racial lines forming in the South. You know, you have sharecroppers, black and white. You had the you have the colored populist party, colored people's party, and you had the white populist party in states like Texas and Georgia working together. And, you know, that was both terribly exciting and terribly dangerous. And it was terribly dangerous because it posed an enormous threat to the social order. And it was terribly exciting because people, for at least a little while, could see who their real enemies were. So you had black and white farmers uniting, and then you had the Knights of Labor coming and joining in. So you had organized the beginnings of organized labor joining in. So if you look at the Omaha platform, the 1892 People's Party platform written in Omaha, Nebraska, and you look at their demands for an eight-hour day, equal rights for women, sick leave, you know, holidays all sorts of free public education. You can draw a very straight line from the Omaha demands of 1892 to the Socialist Party platform of 1912 to the progressive movements of the 1920s to the New Deal of the 1930s. If you look at the, the demands, a lot of them became legislation under FDR. And a lot of the things that became legislation under FDR were were already advocated for by Theodore Roosevelt in the you know the first couple of decades of the 20th century. So so I think that's one thing about the populists is, is to understand that they were the first to stick their heads up after the Civil War and say this is not good enough, this is not working. We have to change things. And then the changes they demanded are the changes that we associate eventually with the New Deal. But we also have to look at what happened when populism failed, which is exemplified by Tom Watson, who was the populist organizer in Georgia and newspaper man, who then became a rancid racist and anti-Semite who called for the lynching of Leo Frank and advocated for segregation in Georgia. So it's not just that you only have progress when racial justice and economic justice are yoked together. It's also that if you let them be decoupled, then you can have really dangerous really repressive, really retrograde political developments. It's to underline both the promise of populism and also the dangers of failed populism. I guess what I would say looking at you know the landscape today is if you deny people a populism of the left and they're offered a populism of the right, then they may take it. 
and that you can't combat a populism of the right by a kind of, you've never had it better, Hillary Clinton, everything is great, and the only people who complain are failures. Yeah, it's a point that comes up over and over in your book in the six chapters, Profiling Activists, that one after another they say, we're not going to get anywhere if we keep trying to persuade people that the system is working, because they know it's... Because they know, because people know it. They know it in their in their guts, they know it in their bones. If you think the system is working, then you're either not paying attention or you're on the wrong side. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and those are really the only two options. Mm-hmm. You know, if you know the system isn't working, then what do you do? And that's what, the, that's what the chapters about activists are about. But the other thing is, if you go out as a reporter, not as a historian, but a reporter, and you go to places like uh, Warren, Ohio, or Braddock, Pennsylvania, or even South Carolina, or Nebraska, Omaha, and you talk to people who are angry. Sometimes they're angry about race or immigrants. Or, but I got the sense that those were, in a way, things they'd been given to be angry about. That they were angry, and they knew they were angry. And if you ask them sort of more deeply what they were angry about, what they were angry about was the sense that something had been taken away from them. And I guess I came to realize that they were right, that something had been taken away from them. And I realized it in Ohio, because Ohio is a state where you're constantly coming upon ruins. If you go to the Rubber Dome in Akron, or you go to the public library in Cleveland, and there are these incredible murals of spanning the Ohio River, or you go to the park in Columbus and you see the the ruins, the actual ruins of Union Station. And I I realized that what I was, what I kept coming upon were the ruins of the New Deal and particularly the ruins of the WPA. And the WPA represented the Works Progress Administration, represented not just a public works program or a jobs program. It built these things, post offices, libraries, bridges, parks, zoos, like the zoo that I used to go to in high school in Memphis was built by the WPA. All over the country there are zoos that are WPA zoos. It it represented an expansive vision of public life and the role of government in public life, not just to provide employment, although that was a given that, that the economy by itself, the free market, was not going to provide employment, so the government had to, but that it would do that in the course of providing people with the amenities of a decent common life. And that that's what had been taken away from people. What had been taken away from people was the feeling that they were entitled to a decent common life simply by virtue of being citizens in what is, after all, the richest country in the history of the world. So, you know, people are aggrieved and they are right to be aggrieved. And yet we had an electoral politics in which only one party addressed those grievances. Now, you know, Trump did it dishonestly and disingenuously and manipulatively, but he did it in the sense that he he let people know that they weren't crazy to think that something had been taken from them. Whereas, you know, with Hillary Clinton, you got the sense that she thought that people wanted something for nothing or that they weren't entitled to it or that they wanted something that should be given to people less fortunate than them. I guess I came to feel that that the kind of promise of the New Deal was still very powerful as a political idea for people. 
And so I was kind of looking for activists who were in tune with that. And I would call those people left populists. I don't know what they would call themselves. Some of them would call themselves that, some wouldn't. But it was kind of interesting to me to see that there are people in far-flung parts of the country. You know, Jane Klebb, who's now the chair of the Nebraska Democratic Party. And you go... It's interesting, you go to Nebraska, which after all is where they where they wrote the Omaha platform. And I'm talking to this woman about who's an environmentalist. She's the person who put together the coalition of ranchers, landowners, and Native Americans and environmentalists that stopped the Keystone Pipeline. And she says, well, you know, we're very big on education in, in Nebraska. We only have, there are no private schools in Nebraska, and all the power is public power. And I'm thinking, but Nebraska is like a Republican state. You know, the legislature is dominated by Republicans. They have two Republican senators. You know, it's, it's a it's one of the reddest of the red states. So, how come they have public power? They had it from the populists. They kept it through the twenties. They enhanced it under the New Deal, and they never lost it. Yeah, it's a wonderful example of this kind of subterranean yeah. of the fact that this this legacy is there this legacy is there to be drawn pulled up to be drawn on and it can be turned in all kinds of ways one of the things you say kind of by the by which surprised me i went to follow up your footnotes about it was uh that on the campaign trail when donald trump would make reference to the new deal it would get a kind of rousing inevitably a rousing response from his audience because there was a sense that this was you know, a common project that had created great things. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he would use rhetoric saying, you know, American hands will make, using American steel, will build American ships and American bridges mm. and, you know, rebuild our infrastructure. Well, our infrastructure has been rotting since 1945. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, uh, I mean, if only he'd made good on those promises, <laughs> that yeah. would be a good thing. So, so I wanted to ask you, hearing you talk about this, that you know that you're you're on the campaign trail, you're following Trump, you're following Clinton, you're following Sanders, and because you have a background in in history as well as you know being a journalist of many decades standing, to what extent does that give? Does that allow you to hear things that might pass other people? By. And I guess it's a kind of larger question about about the boundary that you've straddled. Well, I mean, I think so. If you have no sense of history, if you if you if you're covering politics like a goldfish, <laughs> you know, then then there's always like bright oh bright colors, you know, oh heated rhetoric. But if you're never aware that this has ever happened before, or that these that these are battles that have been fought for decades, generations, you know, then you you miss the, what's at stake. And the thing is, what's interesting to me is you can be very smart as a journalist, but if you have no sense of history, then you're missing what's at stake, whereas the people who are participating it in, in, the, in these fights usually have a sense of history, even if it's a folk memory. You know, even if it's only, I remember when this town, you know, you could quit your job at lunchtime and walk down the street and have another job by the end of the evening, you know, and they're talking about steel towns in, in western Pennsylvania that are now entirely hollowed out and have been hollowed out since Jimmy Carter. But they remember that. You know, they, they know what's at stake. 
They don't necessarily have an economic analysis or a class analysis, but they know what's at stake. And people remember when you could go into Main Street in a farm town and there would be stores and the store owner would know who you were and you could get what you needed and see your neighbors and you didn't have to go to Walmart to get everything. And the people who served you didn't have to rely on government assistance because they didn't get enough money to pay you know, <laughs> their bills or to keep the lights on from their salaries. So I think one thing is that it helps to have some sense of historical consciousness. But then the other thing is, you know, I don't know who it was, you probably know who said history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. But I think whoever said that was pretty smart and that it helps to have an ear for those rhymes. And that definitely, I think that's one of the things that my experience as a historian has given me is I can sometimes hear that tune. So it's been, has it been a year since you finished the book? The book came out in October. So almost a year, and there's it's coming out in paperback. Great. This good. October. So. Good, good, good. And where do you see that next republic heading as we head towards elections of 2020? Well, so I'm going to sort of answer your question by talking about a chapter in the book. So there's a chapter in the book called The Tea Party of the Left, question mark. And that chapter was originally about two young men who I met on the campaign trail. One is a guy called Walid Shahid, who I met when he opened the Bernie Sanders office in Philadelphia. And he talked about, he stood up and said, who needs a political revolution? What kind of people? And he said, he said, I'll tell you, my father needs a political revolution. And he talked about his father, who was a Pakistani immigrant and a parking lot attendant and who who'd come to America 20 years before and was, was still a parking lot attendant, but who'd saved his money and tried to do the American dream thing and did what he was told and put all his money into real estate and had lost it all in the 2008 crash. And I just thought, I went out and watched Waleed do some organizing and I just thought he was a tremendously talented and organizer, a very smart guy. And so I, I just stayed decided to stay in touch with him. And, and we started talking about a thing that a lot of people on the left were talking about in the early or years of this decade, which is, could there be a Tea Party of the left? Could there be a sort of organized force on the left that did for the Democratic Party what the Tea Party did to the Republican Party, which is energize it and take it over? And uh, Waleed was the smartest person I came across about why that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and uh, and there are lots of reasons, and you know, there's, I have a whole chapter about it, but the short version is because once the Tea Party got started, people like the Koch brothers came in and and essentially funded it, took it over, and and used it for their own purposes. And and nobody's going to do that on the left. You know, we're not going to get some billionaire to to do that. So, uh, and so and the fight is different. But anyway, I'm talking to this guy, and I'm talking to this guy called Corbin Trent, who who organized the Sanders campaign in Eastern Tennessee, and then went on to found something called Brand New Congress. And it was a kind of an attempt to do a Tea Party of the Left, and it was failing. And so I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do about this? Because, you know, I would like this book to be optimistic, but these guys are, are failing. And I thought, well, you know, failure is important, too. And you, if you don't learn from from failure, then you're wasting your time. So so this was going to be a chapter about—Tea Party of the Left was going to be my chapter about failure. And I wrote the chapter mostly 
uh, most of it. And I talked to Corbyn and I talked to Waleed. And, we, and they went from brand new Congress, which was to, supposed to supply the left-wing Congress that was going to push Hillary Clinton, President Clinton, to the left, to this thing called Justice Democrats, which was a, an attempt to primary corporate Democrats and push the Democratic Party to the left. And that also looked like it was pretty much going nowhere. Uh, but they did have, they recruited a, a few candidates. And the first woman they recruited was this woman who was a bartender in New York who said she was going to run for Congress. And her name was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And uh, Corbin was her press spokesman and Walid is one of her strategists. And, you know, she won. And she won in the primary against a guy who'd been reelected 10 times and was supposed to be the next Speaker of the House. So... It's still a chapter about failure in the sense that there isn't a Tea Party left and there isn't going to be one. But, but on the other hand, there are possibilities. And so I guess what strikes me looking at 2020 is that you have to be alert to the possibilities as well as the, the frustrations and the failures. And I think one of the things that's interesting about the current political landscape and the current vast field of Democrats running for president is that there are quite a few of them who seem to be alert to possibilities and and willing to push things a little further. Some of them are willing to push things a lot further. So I'm interested in that. You know, I think I'm hopeful about that. I mean, you know, it's possible that they will all turn on each other and destroy each other and leave the field open to Trump. And it's also possible that the Democrats will nominate some centrist who thinks that the way to defeat Trump is to just say, I'm not Donald Trump, and we'll... He'll get, Trump will get reelected if that happens. I'm pretty certain of that. But um, that doesn't seem to me, even at this point, particularly likely. I mean, we could make the same mistake we made last time again. People can be that stupid, but I don't really see any reason to, to believe that that's going to happen. Many thanks to Don Gutenplan for taking part in this podcast. His book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority, is published by Seven Stories Press. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.